0: Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Peter.
1: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal.
0: And this is the Vinepair Podcast. And Zach, man, what's going on? What you what you've been up to? I mean, you've got like three days left. I mean, it's gonna be dry January is over when like so what so what are you going to be drinking? Because <laughs> you said that what you liked about dry January is you get to plan, so I'd like to know. I know, it's planned.
1: true. Uh I think so it's it's one of these funny things. So I, you know, th- just because of how the calendar falls, like the the first day of January, i uh, sorry, February, when you all presumably, or many of you are listening to this is a Monday. And so it's not like the most exciting day to be like, let's have a drink. I think honestly, the thing that I've craved the most, and it's sort of surprised me, is I really think I, I got some uh, darker beers from a brewery near our house uh, that were like a special run. And my wife and I got them during, uh, during January, I've been kind of holding on. So it's like a, I think it's a hazelnut, Stout, uh, which sounds appealing to both of us. So that's kind of been the thing I've been most jonesing for, and that's kind of a good like, I'm going to have a drink on Monday night. I'm not going to like, you know, have several. Yeah. But really, I think the two things that I've been other beyond that that I've been missing, uh, definitely going to have some sparkling wine of some sort, Um, you know, knowing me, probably champagne on uh Tuesday or whatever. And then um, I've really also been missing gin. I didn't think that would be the spirit that I've been missing, but... So I don't know maybe a, maybe I will you know make myself probably a gin and tonic honestly it's been the drink that I've been sort of craving in part because I've been drinking some just plain tonic water uh mm-hmm. on occasion so uh which is like I like tonic water alright but like man that is a big ass letdown <laughs> Like yeah. it's not not the same as as drinking a gin and tonic. I I am well aware. So yeah, it's like these last couple of days. It's it, there's always that like you know sort of voice in the back of my head that's like it's basically February. You can have a drink. It's okay. And it's like yeah, I'm just gonna hold on. And then I feel like I've completed something. Uh, but yeah, what have you been drinking?
0: Uh, so I mean, Naomi and I Nathaniel actually did this really fun thing last night where we like had dinner and then at the end of dinner we um. We had just like a glass each of scotch, mm. which was nice. It was like we you know didn't have any like through the through dinner and whatever. And then like tw- like in the late evening, you know we had like a glass of scotch while we like sort of watched a, a television show as sort of like our our treat. that was almost like a dessert, nice. and I really liked that. It was a Glendronic, um, mm-hmm. which is you know a a Tim McCurdy favorite. Oh really? Yeah, and it was really good. It was uh, it was it was very delicious, and it's like a nice way to end the evening. And so that's probably the most memorable thing that I've had recently. And it was also nice because I've been drinking a lot of bourbon, and mm-hmm. I forgot how nice Scotch is, yeah. um, especially like in the late evening. Yeah, <laughs> I, I find that like I can't drink bourbon after a meal. Right, like I'm like I can have like a glass of bourbon like on a Friday night instead of a cocktail, right? I'm like I'd have a glass of bourbon and then like I'll have dinner and maybe a bottle of wine with Naomi, but like I'm, I'm not gonna have a bottle of wine and then like be like, you know what I want is a dram of bourbon. I feel like I'm like, I mean, uh, to me, it's just it, I can't do it. But the Scotch was nice. I feel like it's, it's just like that lighter sort of whiskey, not as light as an Irish whiskey, but it was a lighter whiskey that just is very very drinkable. And so and so that was nice. Um, yeah, besides that, man. Not much. I don't you know, and who knows what I'll get into this weekend. Um, but no real plans. It's also supposed to be the coldest weekend of the year.
1: Oof.
0: You know, we're 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 in that point in January when like we get a few of these days where it's just like unbearable. Mm-hmm. And I think we're there. Uh and it's pretty funny too to pick on Tim McCurdy one more time. Why not? He's yeah, he's uh he's down in, in the in the Caribbean right now, uh visiting Family and uh, he's like, I fly back on Saturday. I was like, I was thinking to myself, like, man, I would just have been like, I'm not, you know, we're all working remote. Can I stay until like this crazy cold front is through? Yeah, because it's gonna be insane. Even today, I think the high is like 28 or something. Um, it's just no fun, right? No fun. So, who knows? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm actually thinking more too about like, okay, hmm, I'm gonna have to go to the grocery store maybe tomorrow morning before work. Like, what do I want to get for the weekend in terms of dinners and stuff that are also like kind of warming and comforting? Cause it's going to be kind of miserable, I think.
1: Yeah. That I would say, like, that is one of the things about this year of quarantining that is like, it does make it a lot easier when the weather sucks to be like, well, I wasn't going to do anything anyhow, at least for me. The downside is like, it does on the flip side make that like bad weather feel maybe more oppressive because you're like, even if I were to brave the cold, what exactly would I be braving it for, yeah. you know, like to, to like avoid all people. Um, I wanted to mention one thing also while we were talking about drinking, because I thought it was really, uh, it was really interesting to me uh, to think about this um, in, in the context of like, you know, this period of time in the winter where for much of the US it's cold out and and people are doing, you know, eating and drinking. If they're doing it, a lot of them are doing it outside, even if it's not very pleasant. And I was wondering, like, I know you you had mentioned that you were meeting uh Mary Taylor for beers uh on our last episode. Yeah. Uh like what was it like to sit outside and drink a beer And what was I'm assuming not nice weather? I mean Oh let me tell you
0: let me tell you two stories, Zach. Okay. Now that you asked. So one, Mary Taylor was it wasn't that bad actually, because it was like one of these like more temperate nights. Uh ah. and also we just had like two beers, and so I wasn't there for that long. So this earlier this week, Monday actually so I guess a week from when people are listening to this podcast. Um, we have a, a, a I have a friend who sits on our advisory board. He's become a friend, but he's an advisor. His name's Philippe Newland. Um, and he uh he actually runs this company called Ivy Wine, which is really amazing. He uh he used to also run DuClo USA, so they are like, you know, they import like and distribute like Patreuse. Um, but now he runs. Hey, we've had clip. Philippe
1: on the podcast too. You you only hang out with people who uh, have already been on the podcast. Oh right,
0: to. yeah. See if you want if you want to be my friend, come on the podcast. Literally... <laughs> so um... except me,
1: right? <laughs>
0: so, yeah, you're not my friend. No, no, Zach, <laughs> you're my friend. Come on, I don't want to get that. I, I, <laughs> I mess know. With you, but, um... I know. But so uh, also, I like how you kind of dug for the compliment there. That was really yeah, that was good. Um, but so he was like, "Can we get breakfast? I want to tell you about some cool stuff I'm doing." Which he's doing some super cool stuff. He's like. Uh, He's so Philippe basically in addition to and I'm going into way too much information about him, but he he teaches this mat, this very popular wine class to students at uh Columbia Business School and Yale, I think law school or maybe Yale Business School. Okay. And like it's super popular. Um you get to take, you know, you take it one of the years you're in in school it's sort of it's considered extracurricular but it's you know it's only available to people who are students of these schools um and he's been doing it for like 10 or 15 years I think and it's become he has this massive following so anyways he's been still doing it through covid remotely just like every other professor has been teaching it remotely but you know Philippe's you know eight courses are online which I think is awesome um and so he wanted to like t- catch up about that and talk about some other things he was up to um and he was like can we meet for breakfast Uh, and I was like, sure. And we met in lower Manhattan and it was miserable. I mean, I put on long underwear. I I joked with him. It was like, I was getting ready to go skiing, but I'm from the South and don't ski. Yeah. Like I, you know, I don't do these things. I don't do these crazy winter sports where like, you know, you have to wear 50 layers and you're like, yeah, but I'm outside. It's the best. It was, it was fine for the 15 minutes that, that I had my cappuccino. (laughs) <laughs> and then it became really miserable really fast. Yeah. And they had heaters and stuff and I just and I felt really bad for these restaurant workers and it was one of these it was this place called Dudley's which is actually they claim to have like in like introduced the avocado toast to New York City. It's these uh like Australian like I think they're from Melbourne. You know, it's like an Aussie all day cafe and there were other people there. I think it's been featured in shows or whatever. We picked it cuz it was equidistant to where we are both coming from. And they have a really like safe outdoor setup. That's the other thing too is you have to like check for what feels safe. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of in in the city. We've talked about this before. You know, like outdoor indoor dining where it's like literally they have four walls and a door. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be outside, and it's like, so why would I? This actually looks smaller than if I were to eat inside your restaurant. Yeah, um, this doesn't feel safe, but uh, but this you know is open, but that openness <laughs> means it's miserable. Yes. So. It's, it's hard man and yeah I, like this weekend I think is gonna hurt a lot of places um because it's just gonna be so cold like who's gonna do that yeah it's not easy I don't it's know. not easy it's not yeah. easy um I'm just ready for like a crowded warm bar on, in the winter that's always a fun oh, time
1: I the the thing where you like you step inside and you're like suddenly you're wearing your like winter coat and all that and all of a sudden you're like oh it is like 80 degrees in here and I have to shed all of my clothing as fast as possible yeah
0: and the only I, thing that the only thing that sucks about that right is like the smell. If you go to like the, a really crowded bar, yeah, and like you know your ja- some your jacket always winds up on the floor,
1: yeah. You know what I mean? It's like true. you put
0: it, it always winds up on the floor in a crowded bar when it's that like when it's that warm inside, and like the floor is sticky, and you're like, oh yeah. man, now my nice winter coat is like on
1: the floor of this bar. But I, I used to be the person who them. never understood why why coat checks existed in places like not so much you know, bars, occasionally clubs, etc. And now, as an actual adult, I'm like, oh, I would gladly pay five bucks to make sure that no one stepped on my coat.
0: Exactly right. It's like, no, I'm going to keep this and like just and, and risk it being covered in spilled beer later. Exactly. <laughs> like, um. But so, speaking of, I guess like restaurants, etc. We have a pretty fun topic today. You want to you want to introduce it because because the email that it came from the listener came through was addressed
1: to you. It's true. Yeah. So uh, we got an email um, from a a listener. And as a reminder, of course, if you guys want to reach out to us with uh, comments, questions, or possible topics, uh, it's podcast at vinepair.com. And uh, John, who uh, wrote to us, thank you so much for your email. And he kind of had a a long email that was in part in response to an article I wrote for Vinepair, or an essay, I guess I wrote a couple of weeks ago, um, kind of pondering the future, specifically of the sommelier profession. And he wrote, um, and John is based, it lives in Blacksburg, Virginia. He uh, works at the at Virginia Tech and also owns a, a wine bar there. And um, he was sort of writing, asking a question about basically like, you know, maybe in particular in light of what's happened to the industry through COVID, is there the possibility that sommeliers, as he asked, and and I would expand this to maybe be kind of beverage professionals more generally. So your your skilled bartenders, maybe your sister Roans, people of that ilk who who are sort of specialized beverage professionals within the larger restaurant and bar industry, would they be tempted to move or interested in moving to smaller markets that might not have a person of their standing already or might not have many and sort of trading in the density and the Kind of glamour, I guess you would say, of big city living for smaller cities, towns, college towns like Blacksburg, places like that. And I thought this was a fascinating question. I, I wrote back to John, and, and we'll cover kind of some of what I said. But I would really like to love to start with your thoughts, Adam, which is like you know you're connected to a lot of the industry as mm-hmm. am I. And I'm wondering, you know, have you heard any sort of rumblings along these lines from from people, whether they're, you know, specifically the sommeliers and bartenders I spoke of, or maybe just beverage industry pros, period?
0: So I think two things. One, I'm from a small town, too.
1: Mm-hmm. A True.
0: small college town. So I think, you know, I I used to always have this perspective that obviously that's why you left those places. Um, uh, you know, like, that's why I didn't even want to go to college in the in the university town I was from, even though I... Love the sports team, Wardam Eagle, but uh, uh, you know, I wanted to go to Atlanta and go to school at Emory, and like, and then same as like, sort of, you wanted to go to NYU, right? Like this, um, being in a city and whatever. I do think, though, yeah, I mean, there are there are people doing it, and I think what's interesting about what you said to to John that that resonated with me in your response because you cc'd me, which was very nice of you, was. I don't think – I don't see a lot of people moving to these towns – and look, it's going to have to start start to happen, right, if, if more people move. But I don't see people moving to these towns looking for jobs in like the – I'm going to move to a college town where a wine bar already exists and try to become their beverage director. And I think you had a good point about that, which was because if you get there and you don't like that place, then you probably – like there's not another place for you to move to if that's the only – great wine bar that would have even you know caused you to move there in the first place. What I do see some of, and I think we might see more of, is people moving and opening their own places. Uh rent is even I mean yes, rent is going to be cheap in New York, uh, relatively when <laughs> yeah. when when uh when COVID's over, like there are people getting quote unquote steals, but you're never gonna beat the rent of uh, you know, smaller towns. I mean, to put this in perspective, right, this has nothing to do with bars, but this is just Friends of mine I know who are looking to potentially open a brewery, um, they're they're you know they're connected to or were connected to a very large, very famous brewery in New York City. They've gone out on their own and they were looking in a small town in the Hudson Valley, and they found this property that was like it's two buildings, it's on a river. Uh, it has an apartment in one of the buildings that you can you can use. It's fully furnished, or you could fully furnish it. But what I mean is like fully updated, right? It's like this old like sort of tanning factory or something.
1: Oh, Okay,
0: right. Do you know what the rent is for it a month?
1: I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing it's. I don't know. You tell me.
0: Like five thousand dollars. Wow. Right. Like you can't find a tiny office in Manhattan for $5,000. Yeah. Like that's the, a thousand square feet. Right. So I think there are opportunities to move to these towns. And as you know, other people in the Hudson Valley on the brewery side have noticed, people will also come to those destinations. And I think especially when it's smaller, when it's small towns that are connected to colleges. Right. Like as as we as you mentioned in your article. Right. There are there are additional economic drivers that help, right? There are huge football games. There are basketball games. There's usually university theater that brings people into the town. In addition to just a town that has a, you know, a group of people in it that are, you know, I don't want to say intelligentsia as like an elitist, but you know, they all would be looking for a a nice wine bar to meet up with their grad students. I mean, I know like that was my dad's biggest thing, you know, when he was a professor, he just retired, but like, there were no really great bars to meet your student. You know your, your adult students at right. You never because like you either were in a point when when I was growing up and he was really at the you know really pushing as having lots of grad students where like you were either going to wind up at the bars that all your undergrad students were at and you don't want to ever be there right, no. or you were like basically having a beer with your student in your office. Or, like, you're inviting them to your home, there weren't like any adult places. And that's what I thought was so cool about what John said in his emails. Like, you know, he's this wine bar he's created, you know, is for the professors, it's for sort of like the, just the adults in town, but then there are students who want to learn about wine who are of age, who are, you know, seniors or whatever, who are now coming to his wine bar too. So uh, you definitely are hearing about it. There's another uh, really great bar called Lawbird in Columbus, Ohio. Yes. I get also Columbus is a bigger city, but it's really known for the university, you know, Ohio state and Lawbird's amazing. And, you know, it's, you know, done really well and winning a lot of awards on the mixology front. And I think there are people Around the country that are really starved for uh, for these places, and as we become more connected, you know, we're seeing what we can have. We're we're traveling to New York, and we're you know we're experiencing it, or maybe we're living in a city like New York or Atlanta or whatever for a few years, and having a, you know great experience going out to wine bars or, or cocktail bars, and then going to these smaller towns. We want that still, um, and and I think there's a huge opportunity, but uh, but I definitely think it's more in the. It's an opportunity more in in ownership, right, than Mm -hmm. in people saying that they'll they'll move for something that already exists. Unless you know two or three people go to their own places and then there's enough that you could move around a little bit.
1: Yeah. I think it's really fascinating. You know, one of the things you and I talked about way back in the the early days of this podcast, we talked a little about some of these same issues. And and there I think it was a much more hypothetical conversation because we didn't have this, you know, sort of massive change and and blow to the industry that COVID has you know provided that was that's going to be a a real prompt for a lot of change if it hasn't already done that. Uh and then we were talking a lot about how we, maybe we're talking about college towns exactly. We're talking about, you know, sort of second and third rung cities, you know, places like yeah. Atlanta, places like Pittsburgh, places like you know, maybe you would say Austin or, or, you know, Omaha, or, you know, I mean, those are all kind of different in various ways. And I still think that that whole piece of what we've talked about is really true, and that there's a lot. And I think one thing you will see is definitely people who were, were challenged in, um you know, will be challenged to find jobs of the kind that they're used to in, you know, in New York, in San Francisco, in Las Vegas, possibly even, moving to smaller cities. But I think and to come back to this specific topic, what I hadn't considered but until sort of until John's email and thinking more about it was that really for a lot of people the potential is going to be to build something yes of mm-hmm. their own or maybe with an existing property that's willing, you know, where the ownership is willing to really kind of invest in this idea and say look, yeah, we might be in Boise or we might be in Blacksburg. We might be in, you know, pick one of Right. Yeah, exactly. And we know, you know, we know that there is an audience here. And yes, the audience is a fraction of what the audience for any, you know, the possible audience for something in New York or San Francisco is. But we also know that there's not competition. We have a captive audience in a lot of ways. And more than ever before, you know, people in those places are not interested exclusively in the kind of, you know, limited selection and and arguably like limited quality that you know, their, their options would have provided. And we've talked a lot on this podcast, both in terms of this, the sort of flagship pod and then the next round episodes uh, to and about, you know, it challenges in getting products to people who are not in big cities, right. People who, who are just as enthusiastic, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a uh, uh, spirit drinker, beer drinker, wine drinker, who want to drink the things that they hear about, that they read about, that they, you know, see things about on social media. And, you know, don't have a conduit because they don't have a good wine shop in their hometown or a wine bar in their hometown. And online shipping is maybe becoming more of a thing, but still, you know, not robust enough for a lot of people. And the idea of of going into one of those places is really, I think, exciting because you know, again, like I said, there's not the same level of competition, and because I think you know, and I'll say this from my own perspective, even. You know one thing that became a little hard in in what I was doing you know professionally in Seattle, and I think is even more so the case in possibly somewhere like New York is that to be sort of you know quote unquote cutting edge, you suddenly are kind of at a point where you are you are encouraging people and recommending to people these really kind of obscure wines and that doesn't yeah. mean they're not amazing. Sometimes they're fantastic, but it does sometimes take you pretty far afield. It took me pretty far afield sometimes from what I really fell in love with about wine. And it was much more about, you know, okay, well, how obscure of a wine is specifically, cause again, that's kind of where I've mostly worked, you know, how, how obscure a wine could I procure? And, and at some point is that really the thing, but, but in a smaller market, you might be able to, I'm not saying people, you're going to be like, have you ever heard of Burgundy? I mean, maybe that will be your role. But it's more like you can still probably excite people with really, really amazing wines that aren't, you know, that that still come from classic regions. You know, you can probably turn people on to great producers in Burgundy or Barolo or, you know, the Sonoma Valley or whatever. Like those things are not going to be as, you know, just ubiquitous or, or kind of seen as passe almost in a market that just isn't inundated with wine bars and shops uh or you know cocktail bars or whatever right you know you can you can you can kind of work in this great area where you're not necessarily you know you're not selling the stuff that everyone knows but you're also not having to kind of strain at the borders of of what is even available uh to 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 excite people i don't think
0: yeah i th- i think you're i think you're really right here you're spot on and and you know i was realizing while you were talking is what we're talking about is not it's not like it hasn't been done before. Yeah, okay, fine. I, I gave some examples uh, about like other wine bars and and bars I know of, but the few, but chefs have been doing this for years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, chefs have been doing this for years. I mean, there's like like I'm just thinking about Auburn now. Ever, you know, for like the last, I think 6 or 7 years, even longer, the, what's considered to be like one of the best restaurants in the state of Alabama and I think in the Southeast is called Acre, and it's in Auburn. You know, this the chef Left, I think he was either in Atlanta or New Orleans and moved back, you know, and has this incredible farm to table restaurant. Now, I don't remember anytime I've been there, there being a beverage director, right? But that might be because he can't find someone, right? Right. I'm not really, I'm not sure. Um, But that I think is, you know, chefs have been doing it forever. I mean, that's what kind of helped reinvigorate the Hudson Valley was all of these Incredible chefs that were leaving the West Village and Brooklyn and whatever, and saying like, "Screw it, I'm going to move up there." And then beverage people followed. So you know, there's no reason why you can't go that route and find a chef that's doing that, or just do it yourself, right? It, it The models there. The one thing I'm curious about, though, Zach, is um, the the sort of the comment you did make in the email, uh, which was, you know, some people might be scared about being able to find the wines that they love in their current markets, and and I get that. Do you think that's something that like, you know, either is is not true right like maybe you can find them if you work hard enough or also that people just need to get over like okay so you can't find your heavily allocated x y or z but like there's so much good wine out there like why do you care
1: yeah i remember being uh, years and years ago talking to um a sommelier a wine director i guess who who worked in uh where i think was working in somewhere in north carolina uh-huh. uh or sorry was working in charleston and then moved to north carolina and was talking about how even in just in that change, there was, you know, North Carolina's a, you know, there's a lot of it's a pretty big population state, but but doesn't have the equivalent of Charleston, right? Or didn't. I mean, Asheville's kind of a a, a food destination, but it's much yeah. smaller and it's not, you know, it's not coastal, it's not kind of picturesque in the way that Charleston is. And and what she told me was like, you know, the great thing about this is like All the wine that I had to fight for in Charleston, because, you know, South Carolina as a state or Charleston as a market got, you know, X, Y, you know, X amount of it. And North Carolina gets at least that much allocated by the importer or the distributor, but no one wants it. Or there's a few people maybe in the research triangle who want it. Like, you know, there's a few few markets for the for those right. kinds of wines, But you know, she was kind of able to go get what she wanted. And and I think that, you know, to some extent, where you go, that's that may or may not be the case. I mean, I, Virginia is complicated, because obviously, Virginia has, you know, some big cities and, and obviously, a lot of sort of satellite DC neighborhoods that probably have, you know, serious wine programs or wine restaurant, uh, wine bars and shops. But at the same time, you know, I think that that Yes, you may not be able to get the exact wine you want. Although on the flip side, you know, if you if you move to a place, especially a smaller city or town and you open a serious wine shop and you're you show the distributor in that a distributor in that state like, "Look, I can sell whatever, you know, I want to get this, I'll buy it." you know, they, they're going <laughs> to, they will take your money generally. Right. They'll be happy right. to, so even if it's something that, you know, they work with an importer who doesn't normally bring that into their state, but you tell them, Hey, look, I'll buy two cases of this, or I'll buy five cases of this or whatever, you know, your, your quantities you're working on, uh, you know, they're in it, they're in it to do business. And so they will generally do business with you if you can, if they can. And a lot of those places would love for a variety of reasons, you know, those businesses would love to shift some of their, uh you know, to buy, Higher end wines to sell them. You know, it's good for them on a lot of different levels. But the other thing I would say is, and this is the piece of it that I think I, you know, I mentioned in my article, and and I'm not sure that how to resolve this because I do think there is a a challenge to this, which is, you know, part of the reason why people have traditionally gravitated towards big markets uh, in the beverage alcohol profession is some of what we talked about, you know, lots of different, you know, job opportunities, you know, you have better access to product. But some of it is about, a level of camaraderie and, and a community. And that to me is one of the things that I think is, is just a challenge. It's not a, on um, you know, it's not an insoluble one. And it's certainly, there are some people in the beverage alcohol profession who frankly are not as interested in that community going forward or, or, or want to build it from scratch themselves. Um, you know, uh, someone I talked to, I spoke to for that article who I think we've, uh, uh, who's been featured on fine paper before John Wabeck, who is a, a guy in, um uh, Pittsburgh, a a wine professional in Pittsburgh, and really kind of created the sommelier scene in Pittsburgh, not entirely by himself, but was really instrumental in creating it. Um, You know, you can be a person like that who says, you know what, I I don't need an existing community, I will create one, I will find people who are interested in wine or cocktails and I'll, I'll treat I'll teach them I'll, I'll learn from them etc but there are a lot of people who who come to big cities because they recognize that one of the best ways to learn about these things is to be in community and it's hard to do that if you're the expert right you know it's nice to be the expert in some ways but it's hard to learn sometimes when you're the expert you have to be the engine of your own learning all the time and unfortunately the other piece of this is that you know and we've talked about this on the podcast too you know especially outside of those regions maybe even outside of the US, you know, the perception of America as a market, especially for wine, but for other things, too, is still like, it's still about what, four, five, eight, ten 10 cities max, you know, it's, it's, it's a fight to get not just product, but, you know, people who are visiting, you know, winemakers and, and even whole, you know, kind of promotional organizations and boards, you know, if you're in a smaller town, do you want to be having to get, you know, go on the road, you know, take a, five, six, seven hour drive just to be able to go taste wine, because the only mm-hmm. place in your, you know, the only city in your broad region that's getting a a visit from this, you know, Italian wine consortium or whatever is, you know, is that far away. That's a, that's a tough thing. I mean, I, I don't think again, I don't think it's insurmountable. I think there are some people who would look at that as an acceptable cost. But it is a real challenge for people, I think, especially younger professionals who might not, be able to kind of be as self-confident and saying, Hey, I'm going to just go build this thing from nothing or flip side. Maybe they're just dumb enough to think they can and and will succeed because that's a lot of what life is, is just trying shit. Yep. I agree.
0: I I completely agree. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity and there's, you know, yes, there's going to be some downsides as you said, but also I do wonder if like, you know, the, the sort of how we've all become so digital in the last year might Help with that somewhat, right? Like, could yeah. you do, still join a tasting group that is now digital and and meet with people and, and and keep your game up? You know, could you still join you know a group of of bartenders who are learning skills on Zoom or things like that? You know, so that yes, it's it's a bummer, but I also think when when certain markets do emerge, other places will follow, right? I think other people will follow, right? If people start realizing all of a sudden that you know Blacksburg is a great place for for wine, because, you know, one person's having a lot of success, someone else is going to open another place. Like, that's just how it works, right? Um, you know, when when a market realizes that, like, Italian food's the hot thing, right? There's more more Italian restaurants open. Um, and I think the same thing is, is true for this. It's just people, you know, taking the, the leap. And I do think it's really, really interesting to think about there being more people doing that in the next few years post-COVID. Yeah. I really do.
1: I think the other piece of this that we can't know now totally, but is is going to be interesting is to what extent does the broader population say, you know what, <laughs> maybe I don't want to live in New York City. I mean, we've talked about whether this whole, you know, is New York dying thing is a myth or not. And obviously, you know, to to, to, to know, you know, New York is not dying. But I do think that there's some, some real question as to whether as maybe more work goes fully digital, uh... As people reconsider what their priorities are, we may just see a little bit of a of a urban, you know, migration away from really big cities with crazy expensive costs of living. And and that might help, you know, foster some of this this movement within uh, the service sector, because obviously, you know, to some extent, the service sector is always going to follow people and the money. Yep. And, and if you if if you know those kinds of people are moving, whether it's to college towns or to just smaller communities or smaller cities, then yes, for sure, you know, sort of quote unquote tradespeople will follow too. And and that's and that's a, a thing. And I think also, you know, maybe something for us to talk about another time. I don't think it's going to fit into this conversation, but but makes it interesting for for you and I and for, for everyone in Vinepair to think about, you know, how do you cover an industry that is maybe a little bit more Um, dispersed. I mean, I think we've always done a really good job of highlighting, you know, bars, restaurants, wine programs, etc, all over the country. But it is true that like, the more decentralized it becomes, the more kind of like, oh, how do we grapple with an industry where maybe the greatest wine bar in the country is actually in the 143rd largest community in the country? Like, that's certainly possible. And that'd be cool But it's also like it puts an additional kind of onus on us, which I mean, I'm interested in, but but is kind of different than an era when the only things that people seem to care about in wine were happening in five cities.
0: Yep, I agree. I mean, look, I'd encourage people who are listening if you haven't thought about it, you know, there's definitely people who love you know wine, cocktails, grape beer all over the country, and I think now more than ever, there's a lot less risk risk to doing it. so yeah, I mean, if you are thinking about it, drop us a line, let us know. If you've done it, I'd love to hear those stories too. If you're a listener and you, um you've, you know, opened a a cocktail bar, wine bar, you know, a craft beer bar, whatever in, in a, in a smaller market, we would love to hear from you. I think it'd be cool to interview you for the next round, et cetera, and let other people hear what you're up to. Um, Because I think, again, like, like I said earlier, there's going to be some really, really, really exciting things that happen. And um, a lot more possibilities than there used to be. Yeah, for sure. Zach, this has been great. As always, for everyone listening, um, drop, us a, drop us a note at com. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, leave us a review uh, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, five stars, please. And uh, we'll see you next week. Sounds great.